morning. So uh, not, not too many people know this about me, but uh, I, I have a fascination with strongman competitions. I, I love watching strongman competitions. Mind you, watching them, not actually engaging in them personally. Um, I, I love watching strongman competitions. And, and I think part of the reason for that is I just love seeing what people are, what people are capable of. Right? It's just mind-boggling sometimes, seeing what people can lift, what people can do. Um, I, I like watching the Olympics for the same reason. It's just it's overwhelming to me, to, to just the things that we're really capable of. Um, but especially strongman competitions where you actually get to see these brute strength, like this brute strength that you just would never believe is possible, from bending bars around your neck to lifting up cars and things like that. Um, so, so, so one of... One, Currently titled the strongest man in the world, the strongest man in the world. His name is Hafthor or Hafthor Bjornsson, right? Hafthor Bjornsson. He, um, we, we, which, which, his, I mean, his name is Hafthor, right? I mean, like, like, what parent names their kid Hafthor without assuming you are going to be the strongest man in the world someday? Um, I'm actually, I'm actually intending to have this conversation with my wife later on today that we're going to change our son's name to Hafthor. I think it's far more befitting of him. Half Thor Bjornsson. All right, so, so Half Thor, um, who's nicknamed the Mountain for, for obvious reasons, although again, why do you have a, why do you have a nickname when your name is Half Thor? Um, the Mountain, he's six feet nine inches tall. He's six foot nine, all right? His, his body weight, he ranges, his body weight ranges from, from, um, from 400, and, uh, 400 pounds to 440 pounds. Like he fluctuates back and forth in that range. He's Icelandic. Um, he's currently, he currently holds the, the, the best deadlift in the world, the best deadlift numbers in the world. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with the deadlift, it's just you have weights on the ground, you pick them up, and then you put them back down, right? Not rocket science. Pick them up, put them back down, that's a deadlift. Um, his deadlift is currently 1,045 pounds, 1,045, and, and your, your response is appropriate. That, that's mind-boggling. So, so I love watching things like this because it just blows your mind. Like how in the world is someone capable of doing something like that? Well, I mean, for most of these guys, for most of these guys, obviously there's a genetic component, right? One of the reasons you will never see me in a strongman competition is because that's not my gene pool, right? No. <laughs> No matter how hard I worked, if I, if I stopped coming to church and, and only lived in the weight room, I would still never compete in a strongman competition, right? That, that's, just not, that's just not my gene pool. So that's part of it. Um, another part, obviously, you have to have the name Hafthor. Um, but an even more significant part is the training, is the training that you have to do. Um, that includes both sleeping well, it includes tons and tons of food consumption. I mean, just they're just always eating to maintain that size. But then also weight training, right? They're lifting weights all the time. They have to. Because for their muscles to continue to grow, they have to constantly be tearing their muscles down through resistance. They have to tear them down so that they can continue to grow back stronger and larger. All right, this morning, I want to talk about the pain of being ripped down. I want to talk about the pain of being ripped down, but also then the joy of rebuilding. As we've been working our way through the book of Acts, we've gotten to see how the church in its infancy was beginning to grow and beginning to take shape. We've seen the apostles turn from being a fearful lot to those who are possessed with a, with a passion to declare the events concerning Jesus' life and death. Though only a few stood by at the cross, now we've seen multiple occasions 
of preaching where thousands, where thousands have, reti- have responded to the good news of the gospel. But we've also seen that despite all of the amazing things that are happening, there's still pressure weighing in on the community. There's a pressure, there's a weightiness on it. In the last week's sermon, we got to see how there was actually internal sin still in the community, still weighing down on it. This morning, we'll look at external. We'll look at external pressure that's weighing in on the community and how God uses these things to continue to make his community stronger and to continue to grow his community. So this morning, we're going to talk about the powerful gospel ministry that produces pain and pleasure in the life of the Christian. Talking about the powerful gospel ministry that produces pain and pleasure in the life of the Christian. So just kind of breaking the passage down, we'll spend some time looking at the powerful gospel ministry, and we'll look at the, uh, we'll, we'll look at the ministry, the pain of gospel ministry, and then finally we'll look at the pleasure of gospel ministry. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up. We're looking at Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 42. Again, that's Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 42, and we'll read God's word. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed." But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in a public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison's doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. So they returned and reported, we, we, we have found the prison securely locked and the, and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, They were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us? But Peter and the apostles responded, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted him at his right hand, as right hand, as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, 
Take care what you were about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be someone, and a number of, his, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or if this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you for thank you that you are not a God who is silent, but that you speak to us, that you speak to your people, God, and that you rad- and you desire to radically change us and to change our hearts, Father, to bring us into conformity with the beauty of your Son. Lord, I pray that you would be active this morning, God, as we sit in your word. Lord, that you would change our hearts, God, and that you would bring glory to your name. Father, we pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Verses 12 to 16 paint a picture of the continued development of the early church. It's a snapshot. It's a snapshot of how the community is doing. Similarly to to a progress report. If you remember, progress reports were those things that we got in school that would give some indication about how we're doing in the semester. It wasn't wasn't the report card. It wasn't the final. But it it would give us an idea of what we're on track for and what kind of grade we might likely get if we continue on in this way. And so in that regard, the church continues to get regular progress reports throughout the book of Acts, painting a picture of the things that God is doing in this new community. And their progress report tells us at least two things about the early church in this particular scenario, at least two things. First, they were diligent to gather together regularly. We know from other passages that they also met in homes, but here in this passage, it emphasizes their meeting in Solomon's portico. Now, Solomon's portico was a colonnade uh, on the eastern side of the Jewish temple. It was a fairly large area, so it could house many people at one time. And in fact, we even have examples of Jesus himself teaching in Solomon's portico. So it was convenient for its size. It had a reputation for being used in this capacity. But then on top of that, it was also strategic because there were Jews there. So they had opportunities to proclaim in front of other Jewish people the good news about the gospel. Second, They were also seeing significant signs and wonders in verse 12. They were seeing significant signs and wonders being accomplished to the degree that all in Jerusalem, and not even just Jerusalem, but even Judea, out on the outskirts of Jerusalem, were bringing in people, were bringing in their sick in the hopes of them being healed, even that Peter's shadow itself would be cast upon them and healed. These, these healings are the direct work of God's intervention. And not just God's intervention, but God's intervention according to the prayers 
of the apostles. If you look back at chapter 4, at chapter 4, verse 30, we actually have an example of the apostles praying, of the apostles praying that God would do this sort of mighty, miraculous work in their midst. They prayed, they prayed, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And now in, now in chapter 5, we're seeing the fulfillment of this prayer. This ministry of the, of the apostles then has two responses in our passage. It has two responses. First, in verse 13, it resulted in some who it seems probably understood the gospel were still too afraid to join the apostles. They were too afraid to join this new community. The apostles had already been rest, arrested once back in Acts chapter 4, right? They had already been arrested and, and really were only about one year out from the crucifixion itself. So they have already seen a prime example of what it looks like, of what it looks like from, from, from the leader of this movement to follow Jesus' teachings. They've seen what it looks like, and they want nothing to do with the repercussions of it. So they pull away. Similar to the seed that fell on thorny soils in Matthew 13, growth began but was quickly choked out by the temptations and by the fears of this world, right? There's a second response, though. A second response in verse 14, that many multitudes were actually turning to Christ. Now, this isn't just the result of seeing miracles. It's not because of the amazing things that they were seeing happen. Rather, there's something deeper here. Again, going back to chapter 14 and the prayers of the disciples, um, in verse 29, or I'm sorry, but going back to chapter 4, in verse 29, and now look, or and now Lord, look upon, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. The apostles, in the midst of their last imprisonment, in the midst of, of persecution, they didn't pray that the persecution would be removed. Rather, they prayed that in the midst of persecution, that they would speak God's word, that they would speak the gospel with all boldness. That was their prayer. And then that signs and wonders were intended then to accompany the proclamation of the gospel. But it's the gospel ultimately that was changing people. It was the gospel. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Right? It's the gospel that is working to powerfully save people. God saves people through the proclamation of what his son has done in his death and his resurrection. This gospel then is radically shaking the foundations of their whole society. It would later be reported in Acts chapter 17 verse 6 that those who were preaching the gospel were turning the whole world upside down. Not because of them, but because of their message. That's what the gospel does. The gospel turns the whole world upside down. It changes everything. And that's the effect of a powerful gospel ministry. Nothing can remain the same in the wake of the gospel. It's like taking a glass of water and taking only a couple of drops of food coloring. right? Smallest. They seem insignificant. And yet you drop them in and the entire glass is changed. And not only is it changed, but it can't go back to what it was. This is what the gospel does in society. It changes everything. So the gospel ministry comes in and it powerfully works to draw people to itself. However, the gospel explosion doesn't come without effect. 
right? It doesn't come without effect. The gospel and conversions don't take place in a vacuum. Satan doesn't simply acquiesce to the advancement of God's people. Rather, a powerful gospel ministry leads to pain. It leads to pain. That's what we see here. The, the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership responds swiftly. Uh, if you were here a couple of weeks ago in Pastor Jason's sermon on chapter 4, the, env- the events unfold in a very similar way, except we see escalation. Whereas previously only, only two apostles were arrested, just Peter and John, here we actually see all of the apostles being arrested. And it's also done very publicly. Because the Sanhedrin wants to make an example of these people. Again, remember the fear looming in the background. The Sanhedrin is attempting to stomp out this embryonic movement before it has a chance to mature. It was only a year previous that Jesus himself was publicly crucified. So the gravity of the situation would have been palpable for the followers of, for the followers of Jesus. As the apostles wait in prison, though, something unexpected happens. And I say it's unexpected because, again, this isn't their first time in prison. They've been there before, and then they just sat in prison. This time, something different happens, though. An angel appears and releases them. Um, I'm, also, I'm, I'm always intrigued by, um, by, by prison breakout movies. Uh, breakout movies are always interesting because you, you, know, you always have this character that's put in an impossible situation. It's like this top-notch security prison that no one ever can get out of and, like, and everything is against them. But, but then it's like a puzzle and you get to watch them kind of slowly work through like, okay, well, I'm going to do this. And, and then at the end, you're always like, huh, that, that, that was brilliant. Um, well, at least the writer was brilliant in writing it. Um, you, you know, one thing they all have in common, though, all prison breakout movies, whether it's Escape from Alcatraz or whether it's Shawshank Redemption, they, they all have this in common. Once, once the person breaks out of prison, they hide, right? They, they never go to a public place and do a very public thing, right? They, they go and they hide in, in the hopes that they'll be able to hide for the rest of their lives and no one will ever see them or recognize them again. Um, the apostles do the exact opposite. They do the exact opposite of that. This is probably one of the worst prison breaks of all time. Because they get out of prison, and then they immediately go stand in the temple and begin preaching again. There's no anonymity to that, right? There's no confusion. Everyone knows where they're at. And they have been publicly arrested. And here they are now publicly declaring the gospel again. In the Sanhedrin's attempt to publicly show their strength, God responds by publicly showing his strength, right? He, he shows them, no, 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 no. You Sanhedrin, you're not in charge. I'm in charge. I'm in charge of all of this. this. This happens according to my plan. My people are my people, and I will take care of them, and they will be where I want them to be. When the Sanhedrin finally realize what's happened, confused, they, 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 they regather the apostles and then they bring charges against them. In verse 28 saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So, so there are two charges here that they get accused of. The first is that the apostles are charged in contempt because they have disregarded the previous rulings of the court. Back in chapter 4, the court had told them, don't share, the name of, don't share the name of Christ. They've gone and they've done it anyways, right? The second accusation that the apostles are condemned of is, that, is for actually condemning the Sanhedrin, right? They're, conde- they're condemned for condemning the Sanhedrin. And of course, the irony here is that, well, they, 
they were the ones who prosecuted Jesus. They were the ones who, uh, who, who had him crucified. But on top of that, even back in Matthew 27, they actually accepted responsibility for it back a year ago. They say there in Matthew 27, verses 24 to 25, um, Pilate, Pilate stands before the people, and Pilate says, I, I haven't found anything wrong with this man. And so he washes his hands of the situation, and he says, I am an innocent, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people, the Jewish leaders, respond and all, uh, responded, his blood be on us and our children. So just a year ago, they had actually already accepted responsibility for Jesus' death. Peter responds then, Peter responds to them with possibly the worst defense in history, right? Worst prison breakout in history, and then he follows it up with the worst defense in history. Um, which basically his defense amounts to, yes, we, we did all that. You're right, right? I mean, that, that's basically what it comes to. You've totally evaluated this, uh, the situation correctly. You guys are right. We're guilty. Um, he elaborates a little bit more, though. Um, verse 29, picking up on, uh, on his defense from his last trial back in chapter 4, verse 19, here he embraces again what we often refer to today as civil disobedience. Civil disobedience. Civil disobedience basically means that Christians follow God first and foremost, even over earthly authorities. We follow God over earthly authorities. However, following God typically includes following earthly authorities. So we follow him over earthly authorities, but that often means actually following earthly authorities. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, Peter writes, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Now, notice here it doesn't say honor the emperor because he's such a godly man. It doesn't say here honor the emperor because he's so altruistic and so, so kind-hearted and generous. It doesn't say that. And not only that, but this is Peter he, at least according to church history, he, he will be crucified later on upside down by the emperor, right? And yet he says here, honor the emperor. He's not deluded about who the emperor is. We are called to honor our leaders. Romans chapter 13, uh, verses 1 to 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For, fours are always important when, when understanding scripture. For there is no authority except from God. There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Right? God is the one who has instituted our leaders. He is the one who has chosen them. He is the one who has put them into place. It was his idea. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God himself has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Or Titus chapter 3 verse 1. Remind them talking to Christians, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, um, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. As Christians, we are called to submit to rulers and to authorities. And finally, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor, uh, whether, to, uh, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. Why? Why are we called to be obedient? Because it is for the Lord's sake. It is for his glory. It is for his honor. Our obedience to other authorities is tied to our obedience to him. And as we obey, as we obey them, he is glorified. Obedience to earthly authority is tied directly to obedience to our heavenly ultimate authority. In our culture, I think we're too quickly drawn to the potential of disobedience as Christians. We're too quick to forget about the significance of obedience. 
the obedience that we, should, that we should show. We're a culture that has disdain for authority. We push back against it. We mock it. We squirm uncomfortably under it. And yet the biblical depiction of authority, the biblical depiction of authority is that even under non-Christians, it's good. Even when it's under a non-Christian, authority over us is a good thing. So, so a yes, ultimately, to paying our taxes, even though we know our tax money doesn't always get used for the things that we agree with, ultimately is a yes to Christ. A yes to following city codes and regulations is a yes to Christ. A, a yes to obeying driving laws and speed limits is ultimately a yes to Christ. And by doing so, we give honor and glory to God. Right? As we obey parents, as we obey bosses, as we obey those that God has put over us, we actually give him glory. And when, and when that authority goes awry, when that authority goes awry, and when, we are, when, when it attempts to force us into doing things that are incompatible with Christianity, right? Then, then, we're, then it's okay for us to have disobedience. But we're called to do it in a civil way, and we're called to do it accepting the repercussions that come with that. So yes, as our passage shows us this morning, there is a time to part ways with civil authorities and with those who are in authority over us. And we can do this ultimately because our submission is first and foremost to Christ. Our submission is always first and foremost to Christ. The early Christians were so recognized for, the, for their obedience to civil authorities that, that apologists in the second century, Christian apologists in the second century like Justin Martyr, were able to argue with the Romans that being Christians actually made, actually made, Roman, actually made people better Roman citizens. To be a Christian made you a better citizen because you were obedient and because you were charitable, right? And, and again, that was in the midst of Christian persecution. Christians were striving to live under the civil law to the best of their ability, as far as they could go. Peter's second defense here, that was Peter's first. Peter's second defense is the gospel is the gospel. He actually embraces the accusation that, uh, that, uh, that, he has, um, that he's accused the Sanhedrin of killing Christ. He embraces the accusation, and then he turns and he uses that as an opportunity to share the gospel, right? Now, if it was me in that situation, and I was on trial, and, and I knew that my life hung on the line, I would probably stay on topic, right? I would probably, and I would probably find some good excuses. I mean, as good as I could find, I would find excuses to try to get myself out of trouble. Peter's tactic is the exact opposite. Peter's, he, he, he senses that he has the floor. He has the floor. He has the opportunity to say whatever he wants. And instead of trying to justify himself, instead of trying to vindicate himself before them, he uses it as an opportunity to share and to proclaim the gospel, the very thing that ultimately he's really on trial for in the first place. Right? He, he accuses them of being guilty in it, but then he jumps immediately into talking about the richness of what Christ has done. Verse 30, that Jesus was crucified and resurrected. Verse 31, that, that he is exalted to the right hand of God. And verse 32, that the apostles and the Holy Spirit are witnesses to these truths. Peter doesn't miss the opportunity. 
He says exactly what he wants to say. While most of us would recoil and be more focused upon saving our own lives, Peter's focus is rather on saving souls through the world-shattering message of the gospel. Expectedly, the Sanhedrin responds with rage, desiring to execute the apostles, but one of their own, Gamaliel, intercedes. Now, Gamaliel was a leader of the Pharisees, and, and we'll, later on, we'll later find out that he was actually a teacher of the apostle Paul. And his argument is summarized in verses 38 to 39. If this plan, if this plan or this undertaking is of men, then it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow it. You will not be able to overthrow this ultimately if this is of God. Now, his counsel certainly, certainly does not commend Christianity, but it also doesn't condemn Christianity. And while we certainly don't know what Gamaliel's real intentions were, God uses Gamaliel to free the apostles. However, not before they're beaten, right? The apostles are beaten and then they're released. So that the productive gospel, the productive gospel, the powerful gospel that's been working in their community has produced pain for the apostles. They've been arrested. They've been shamed before their, before their people. They've been threatened. They've been physically beaten. And they're close to execution, right? Because it won't be long before they actually see other members in their community being executed. The more the gospel continues to impact, the more pushback the apostles continue to expect. The more pushback they continue to hit, the more persecution they continue to receive, right? And that's what happens. The more the gospel impacts, the harder Satan and Sanhedrin attempt to stop it. The more the embers and flames of Christianity continue to spread, the harder sin and Satan will attempt to stop it out. There will be consequences for doing the work of gospel ministry. There are always consequences for doing the work of gospel ministry. Even Pastor Jason this past week, as you remember, he was gone in Oregon. He, uh, he, he himself faced hardship and trial as he was away ministering and sharing the gospel. We had vandals who uh, came into his office and <laughs> did this. Decked the whole place out in purple and gold. Horrible, horrible scene. Or, or, or maybe it's just Pastor Jason's true colors shining through. I'm not, I'm not totally confident one way or the other yet. Um, happy April Fools. Um, right? There are consequences to gospel ministry. There are consequences. There will be pain that will accompany it. And it might not be physical pain. It might not be an actual physical beating. But, but there will be consequences, even, for, even in our culture. And that will continue to grow and to grow. But along with that, we don't just see pain that accompanies gospel ministry. We also see pleasure. We also see pleasure. The abuse and pain at the hands of the Sanhedrin had two ultimate effects. The apostles respond in two ways. And both ways should be startling to us if we're honest. First, they respond with pleasure in verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They rejoiced. Now, they weren't rejoicing just for the sake of pain. It wasn't the pain in and of itself that they, that they were enjoying. Rather, they rejoiced because they were counted worthy. They were counted worthy. Jesus had told the apostles that their lot, if they were faithful, would ultimately be the same as his. Pain and suffering were the promises that Jesus had given to his people back in Luke chapter 6, verse 20, verses 22 to 23. There it says, 
Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. But rejoice in that day. Rejoice and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Rejoice. That's, that's blessedness. And these apostles knew it. They knew that they were blessed. They knew that they had treasure waiting for them that made this world, that made the promises of this world pale and pasty in comparison. A treasure that was so tremendous that outweighed all earthly comforts and health and prestige and honor and even long life because that treasure was that rich. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, pastor, once wrote, The greatest earthly blessing that God can give to any of us is health. With the exception of sickness, of course. Right? Because even sickness, even sickness, even pain, even toil, all of these things ultimately are a blessing when they're received by God's people. Hebrews 10.34 For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Right? This ultimate reward is what motivated the apostles. It's what motivated God's people. This ultimate reward of of eternal life and overwhelming joy in the presence of our God. And this precious reality drives everything that the disciples have done in this account. From being released to prison and going and preaching in broad open in front of everyone. Again, crazy by this world's standards. Makes complete sense for the apostles. To to preaching in front of the very court that was attempting to convict them. Again, crazy by this world's standards. But it makes complete sense when you know where their treasure at is at. To now even rejoicing after being beaten. This makes no sense by the world's standards. And yet it makes complete sense when you know where their treasure is at. It all flies in the face of worldly wisdom and boasts that we have something better. We have something better. We have something that the world doesn't understand. We have God. Richard Vermbrand, some of you maybe are familiar with his name, author of an autobiographical book called Tortured for Christ. He was a Romanian pastor who suffered under communism. He was imprisoned and he was tortured cumulatively for about 12 years. It was so bad that his feet were permanently mutilated. He was put through all sorts of sensory deprivation. He was brainwashed. They did everything they, they did. They did everything they could to take the Christ out of him. But rather, it just solidified him all the more. His wife was also in prison for a number of years. While she was imprisoned, while she was in prison, their, their son was actually left homeless because by law, people could not come in and take care of their son when both of them were in prison like that. Uh, eventually, a Christian family stepped in. They broke the law, and they took the son in anyways. He, he wrote this, Richard Vermbrand. Um, he wrote that I have, found true, I have found truly jubilant Christians only in the Bible, in the underground church, and in prison. Those are the places where we find truly jubilant Christians because they have been considered blessed, right? They have suffered. Second, the second effect is the overflow 
of that pleasure, ultimately in proclamation. Verse 42, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The very thing, the pain that was supposed to shut the apostles down only served to exacerbate their preaching. Their pain led to pleasure that it ended in more gospel ministry. This is what happens when our joy is ultimately rooted in Christ. We, we have to talk about him. And court orders and pain and suffering only serve to make our words all the sweeter. Right? The more stress the disciples experienced, the more strain, the more persecution, the more it solidified their priority and their joy. A diamond, a diamond has to be formed under incredible circumstances. There are only certain places on earth where a diamond can actually be formed because it needs such, such intense pressure and it needs such intense heat. It has, to be in the, uh, it has to be in the mantle of the earth, at least 90 miles down from the crust, right? Um, and, then, and then it really needs to reach temperatures of at least 2,000 degrees for it to form. And it's only under those, extreme, under those extreme circumstances that something as beautiful as a diamond can come forth. It's only in the crucible, ultimately, that silver can be refined. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this morning, Lord. Again, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the example that your apostles gave, Father, of what it looks like to be joyful in the midst of suffering and persecution. Lord, Help us to remember that it is not about your apostles, though. Father, it is about you and what you were doing in them. Father, for the way that you were working powerfully. Lord, I pray that you would continue to do the same in us, Father. That no matter the trials, no matter the hurdles, no matter the pain, no matter the suffering, Lord, that it would only serve to invigorate our praise of you, God, and our joy. Because our treasure is that rich. Father, we thank you. We pray all this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. I want to close with a doxology. This comes out of Jude, verses 24 to 25. Benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, before all time and now and forever. Amen. Go in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ.